Luke 7, starting in Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who, will, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can be here together without fear of persecution, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that we would be bold, that we would, um, that we would be that church, that body, where you would find faith, Father. We ask, Lord, that um, you would open our eyes, that we would hear your word, that we would talk to you, Father, continually without ceasing. We ask that you would um, that you would pour your Holy Spirit into Jonathan, that he would that you would give him the words um, that would resonate, Father, and that you would open our hearts, Lord, to hear you. We love you. We ask, Father, that you would continue to be with us and bless this church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, John. The king is the hope of the kingdom. The king is the hope of the kingdom. And it's not often 
that we get to observe a transition of power in a monarchy in our day. I don't know how many of us have actually been alive to witness that on a a large scale, but being part of a republic is our form of government. We have presidents and leaders, but we choose them and change them often, thankfully. Uh, But due to Queen Elizabeth's very long life and long reign, we haven't witnessed in many of our lifetimes a change of that pageantry, of that uh, monarchy and the magnificence that goes along with it. It's fascinating that in a moment upon her death, the the nation's anthem changed from God save the queen to God save the king. Because now Charles III, Is king. It's interesting, while he is actively at this very moment now, he is king, he still awaits his coronation, which is yet to happen. The public moment when the crown is lifted upon his head and the scepter is placed into his hands, his kingship is already inaugurated, but it's not yet coronated. While we don't have much of a personal experience with earthly kings, we know what it's like to long for a better kingdom. To have that ache, that desire for a better situation, for a better government. A good government, maybe even as we define it, more than just mere rhetoric from a political position, but actual action taking care of the people that are part of the nation. To have a more perfect Union And in all our longing, these earthly princes that we continue to look to just keep failing. None have delivered the utopia that we have hoped for. None have solved all of the ills of humanity. So many of us rightly just lift our eyes. That we might just catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God, that perfect government, the eternal king that is promised to us. And the truth is, we are not the first in 2022 to set our hopes on this kingdom. Because there's been hope for it from the garden, from the flood, from the exodus, from the establishment of Solomon's temple, from exile, from the silence of 400 years. The hope has been carried through many generations. The better kingdom, the perfect place, the perfect people, the perfect king. And in that hoping, the image dreamt of took on then the colors that have been shaded by human hearts and lives. And then onto the scene of history comes this rabbi preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. The truth is, he was more than a preacher. He was working miracles that were confirming his ministry. He was God. His description of the kingdom was different, something beyond description. So people had to pay attention. And we look at this account in Luke's gospel, not as nostalgic observers, but as people longing for this kingdom that Jesus preaches of. And what we see here is meant to shape then how we wait for that kingdom. King is the hope of the kingdom. That's what we want to take away from this section of Luke's gospel this morning. Now, at this point in our study of Luke's gospel, we are on the journey to Jerusalem. So Jesus and his 
band of merry followers are making their way to their final moments in Jerusalem. And Jesus and his followers have been then teaching and preaching and working miracles. And here, in response to another question from the Pharisees, those that were the religious leaders of the day, Jesus tells of the kingdom's already and not yet expression. And in doing so, he gives us a glimpse of a coming day that to many can actually be fairly disconcerting. It can be worrying, but he gives us what we need to not lose heart while we wait. So we start with the reality that the kingdom is in the king. The Pharisees asked this question. And they would ask about the kingdom because they've had this expectation that's kind of central to who they are. Their theological framework has this hope of the reimagined kingdom of Israel. And we actually see this uh, an awful lot in Luke. There's a lot of interaction even for a book that was written for a primarily Gentile, Gentile audience. There is a lot of reflection on what Jews had hoped for in the kingdom. And this gospel account is actually headed to one of my favorite sections at the very end of the book to an interaction where even Jesus's followers will be corrected about what the kingdom of God is and what it's meant to look like. The Pharisees expectation, though, was one that was different than what Jesus was teaching because they had a vision of one of political rule. They wanted the throwing off of Roman occupation to kick out the Roman legion that was there. They wanted to return to the nation state of Israel, that they would have their own kings again. They wanted a place just for them where they get to be in charge. And so they asked Jesus, when is this coming? And he answered them, the kingdom of God's not coming in the ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And it's not coming in ways that you were expecting and people won't say, look, here it is as if they won't have eyes to see it. And Jesus apparently means that the arrival of the kingdom of God will not be accompanied by spectacular signs in the heavens, but rather that the kingdom will come quietly, evident only in the change of people's lives. But he says something that is confounding even in that, that it's a kingdom that you won't be able to observe in its coming, but he says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And there's some divergence on the translation of that original language in this section, because some can translate it that the kingdom of God is within you. And that's one option, but he's at this moment answering Pharisees, and they're the ones that have been rejecting his teaching on the kingdom all up to this point. So it's not likely that the kingdom's actually in them. You can also translate that Greek into that the kingdom is within your grasp. That it's like so close you can reach out and touch it. And I think that's better that you can be part of it. It's around you. It's close enough to touch. And our translation says it's in the midst of you. And we can take this rightly as disciples to give that sense that where the citizens of the kingdom are, there it is. And so it's in the followers of Jesus. It's in the midst of those that believe in him that has come. Preach the year of Jubilee to inaugurate a kingship that will last for eternity. 
So it's not wrong to see that perspective, but I think it's best to hear this in the midst of you as conveying that Jesus is in the midst of them. And where the king is, the kingdom is. And we can give them a little grace for maybe missing it, right? He's yet to be lifted up with a sign declaring that he is king of the Jews above his head, right? But we know that Jesus is king. He's the promised one. We see it from Isaiah 9. We're getting ready for Advent before too long. Everybody get their uh, pumpkin spice lattes. What's in that cup, John? Not pumpkin spice? No? Black. Black. Oh, okay, okay. Boring. Just today. How boring. But it's coming. Even the cooler temperatures, which is strange for early October, but we'll take it. We're headed toward this Advent season and that we will proclaim Isaiah 9, right? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. And I tell you, you may hear that in different settings about other people, but this is only about Jesus, I promise, right? And Jesus even calls the kingdom his as he stands before the Roman governor Pilate, right? In John 18, Jesus answered Pilate and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's different, but it is his kingdom. And we can know the hope to which he has called us when we have eyes to see it. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1. He says, to see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Here it is, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. The son that has come, the one who declares this is my kingdom, the one who we know is the authority over all other authorities. And I love this about Jesus. We were talking about tattoos earlier. This is his reality of his kingship even tattooed on his body. If you're the king of kings, you should have that tattooed, tattooed on your thigh. Do you know that? But none of you can get that tattoo. It's only for Jesus. We see this in Revelation 19. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Here it is, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is who is in the midst of them. This is the king in their midst. 
As one New Testament scholar says, in other words, the kingdom is present in the person of Jesus. He is the sign of the kingdom, but he is more than the sign of the kingdom. He embodies the kingdom. The Pharisees want to see the kingdom, but even more important than the kingdom is the king who is standing right in front of them. When one is in the presence of the king, the kingdom is present as well. And what he has invited everyone to up to this point, to everybody that has heard his preaching, everyone that has heard of him in preaching by others, is to his way, to his rule in our lives. Like we get That's what we're called to. That's what we remind each other of. And where his rule is, the kingdom is. And the Pharisees might miss it, but we should not as followers of Jesus. Well, pastor says that in a significant sense, Jesus was also was and is the place of the kingdom of God. The Old Testament images of locality, the Garden of Eden, the promised land, the city, Zion, the temple, all reach fulfillment in Christ. Because in the New Testament, the locality of the kingdom is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus replaced the temple and thus those indwelt by Christ become the place of God's rule. Those indwelt by Christ. You and me are the place of the kingdom because the king is in us. And this is where we live now. We prayerfully ask God to build that radical kingdom that we see, uh, his ethics that he preached at the Sermon on the Mount into our lives. And above all, we must be radically then Christ-centered for then we become the people of God, our hearts, the place of God, and our lives, examples of the rule of God because we are the kingdom. And the truth is, though Jesus has been gone for over 2,000 years from his earthly ministry, the kingdom of God is in our midst. If we have trusted in him or in the, and we are in Christ, we are his people living in his place. Is Jesus the temple living under his rule? We are children of the kingdom. And it's really good news for us. That which had been waited for by generations has arrived and we get to experience that. We get to celebrate it. We get to have feasts with one another declaring it. And we've been given much to carry us through the rest of life. The Holy Spirit has been given to teach us all truth, to pour the love of the Father into our hearts. We have union with Christ our King. All that is His is ours. So friends, the kingdom is now. It's why we gather on Sundays. It's why we gather during the week to open scripture and encourage each other. It's why we serve each other. It's why we protect each other. It's why we serve the least. And it's why we search for the lost that they could be brought into this kingdom. But the kingdom is also on its way. And the kingdom is in the return of the king. And in our text, Jesus shifts his audience and from the Pharisees answering their question. He speaks to his disciples and they've yet to experience what we have. And we have to remember that context. They've yet to see how the story is going to end. And so we look at it. We know what's going to unfold in the next several chapters and we can stand on that truth. But they don't know where the story's going. And he says to them, days are coming when you will desire to be with Jesus again, but you will not see it. 
There will be people saying, look here, look there, as if Jesus has returned, but don't follow after them. Because the Son of Man's day, his return will be clear. From a kingdom arrival that can't be observed, that it's in the hearts of the people that the king has dwelt in, his return will be unmistakable. And so we just have to, just an aside, why is the son of man significant? We read that, we think, well, yeah, it's like he's human. That means he's human, right? And we don't recognize the significance of the prophetic value of son of man. But the crowd that was listening to him would have. We get this from Daniel 7, this prophetic vision of the coming king. And Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus doesn't even have to use the language of Messiah or the Mashiach, the anointed one. He has declared that he is the son of man, which is declaring that he is the hoped for king, the Messiah from the ancient of days. And Here he's claiming this prophetic promise for himself. He is the son of man. And when he returns, when his kingdom comes in full, you will know it. Jesus will not return in secret. His coming will be as obvious, as pervasive as lightning that fills up the entire skyline of the globe, which means that his coming will be an unmistakable and very public event. But first, he says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. We know, we know what he means by that, that Jesus has to go to the cross to give himself in our place, to take on all condemnation and answer it with his blood fully and finally. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has won for us the riches of his glory. We have perfect acceptance because of what he's done with God in Christ. And even more, there is nothing that we will possess in glory that we do not have now in Christ. This very moment, if you're in Christ, you have eternal life. You have righteousness. You have purity. You have identity as sons and daughters of the king, citizens of his kingdom. Salvation and transformation are all yours. And those that call him king in the waiting, we cannot lose sight of him. He gives us this image of the day of the Lord, of his return. In verse 34 through 37, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. You may have noticed the 36 is missing. It's not in all the manuscripts of the scripture, but essentially says two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. From that of timing, the question shifts now to location. And the disciples say, where, Lord, where will it be visible? And he says, as you see the vulture circling, you will know that it has happened. 
And we see this taking and we wonder whether this is a positive taking or a negative taking. Is it good that one was taken and one left or is it is it bad, right? Is this rapture or is this judgment? In other gospel accounts that Jesus has relayed the Mount Olivet discourse, give more of this picture. But as we look at it, I tend to see in the context the taking here as judgment for those that have rejected the king. But more importantly, it's about what we live for as we wait for his return. Holding things loosely for his glory, expectant of that day, as in the days of Noah. Since people were going about life without regard for the Lord, as in the days of Lot, they were buying, selling, planting, and building as if those things were their hope. He says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. This is the truth, right? We've always seen those tropes that like, you don't take any of this with you. You don't pull a U-Haul behind your hearse. Right? But when the kingdom comes, as the king returns, it will be a surrender of all that we've had. And we should not look back. Remembers Lot, Lot's wife, he says, she who turned into a pillar of salt for longing to go back. The warning is that if we cherish the things of the world more than the king at his return, we're going to miss out. Proof of a lack of faith. But he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Life in the kingdom, waiting for the king, is willing to lose what we will lay behind, holding it all loosely, just as tools for eternal hope rather than hope itself. All so that we could see the king when he comes. Tom Schreiner says that the question regards what humans seek and desire if they desire to preserve life in this world then like lot's wife life will be lost in the eschaton in the return in end times but those who lose their life for jesus sake who long for his return will love jesus as their greatest treasure and they will find their lives and will be delivered as noah and lot were love that that who love jesus as their greatest treasure that's the hope for us as followers of christ that he would be the thing of greatest worth in our life that everything else would pale in comparison to him jesus reminds us that when we live by faith alone and find our joy and happiness in him we will gain our lives because of our joy in christ like what is that song all i have What is it? I don't even know how it goes. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. I clearly need to learn that song. So it's on my heart more. But we never ultimately lose anything. And that's what you need to know. Like, yeah. Assemble your field. Enjoy what he's given you. Use it so you can win friends in eternal dwellings. But You're not going to lose anything on the scale of eternity. You actually gain everything. As 
Paul tells us in the letter to the Colossian church, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He says to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. Yes. Cherish him, live different under his rule, under his way. And on that day, all that is sad will come untrue. Eternity with our king will break forth and it will be glorious beyond what we can imagine. It will finally be as things were meant to be forever. Oh, the ache for that day and how long we have been waiting from this moment when Jesus declared that the kingdom is come. It is in the midst of you and the Son of Man will return again. But I love that Jesus doesn't leave his disciples or us hanging alone through this waiting. And that's why we didn't stop at the chapter break but we continued with the thought of what he was teaching and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And this is just lastly that we the kingdom persist. United with him by faith we are the kingdom and we anticipate his return but we do not wait in silence. We always pray so we don't lose heart. In this moment, Jesus tells the parable of the persistent widow. And you have to recognize widows are among the least in the first century culture. They had been routinely taken advantage of by ruthless men that would just take over their property and marry them to get what the previous husband had given them. And she, this widow, this lowest member of society, goes before an unrighteous judge who does not give a rip about God or man. Yet she persists in asking for justice against her adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he gives her justice so he won't have a black eye from her persistence. That's like the literal translation of what Jesus says that unrighteous judge says. And we have to understand, God is not an unrighteous judge. But even if that character, the unrighteous judge, relents, Jesus says, how much more will the God of love give justice to the elect? To his people. We don't have to be frantically assaulting the door or nagging God for a response. But we can trust that because of who God is, he will hear us and he will answer us. 
Think of as we wait is a prayed this week in Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all. All evil, he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And because Jesus has come, because he's given of himself for us, because of his resurrection, all of that is true. He has us, he is for us, and we can cry out to him and know that he will answer us. So prayer then is fundamentally not a duty for us, but it is a confession that strength comes from the Lord, that disciples cannot make it on our own, that we need His grace every day. And friends, this wasn't in my notes originally, but we live in a world of fear. With some friends, even last night at dinner, and we just heard some accounts of things that can stoke fear. Even one of my friends said, oh, I think we're going to go to a, a military war. It's going to happen this year. Russia or China or somebody. Right? And you have to know that the devil for a long time has even monetized fear. You can go buy books. At the Christian bookstore, they don't even exist anymore because everybody's on Amazon. But if there was a Christian bookstore, you could go and there, the predominance of the books there would be fear-driven. Do you understand that? Like, look at these signs. Look at this bad stuff. It's all coming back. And is the world terribly broken and sinful, corrupt from the moment in the garden? Absolutely. Is there pain? Is there suffering? Is there violence? Absolutely. Are these things that we will face without a doubt? Is this age an anxious one? Yes, it is. But we are not people of fear. Because as we wait, we persist in asking for justice because we have nowhere else to go. No one else who can save. Oh, and he has saved. And he will return. That we serve Jesus who is going to come back on a white horse with a sword out that dude's mouth. Mobilize your military. Strategize all you want. Persecute me. That is fine because when the Son of Man returns at his appearing, everyone that's opposed to him is struck down. Forever. Where am I going with that? Don't, Don't fear. Don't waste money on garbage that tries to stoke your fear. Don't vote for people who try to stoke your fear. Trust in Jesus. Be the kingdom. Cry out for justice. Be the people providing mercy where you are. Lifting his name because he is your hope. And Jesus tells them, like, pray always and don't lose heart. And we need to be told this because our frailty and our brokenness make us lose heart and cease to believe this about our God because we face difficulty in life. One writer says our perspective is limited and our vision is clouded. Scripture continually reminds us that God is truly for us in Jesus. And we need this constant reminder of God's kind heart and great power toward us as we fight against our inherent unbelief. We now belong to him. He is our advocate. He delights to care for us and to defend us. 
Bring it on. You are Christ. And I, I know, friends, it feels so far off. I, you know, I grew up in the 90s. We were ready for the Lord to come back with trumpet blare every 10 minutes. There was a new show that had us ready for that rapture, right? But it feels far off. Even so, it is soon. Peter writes to the church, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. In a moment. God's not reluctant to give as the judge was. He longs to give to his children. Still the parable clearly teaches that believers are to cry out to the Lord day and night for justice. Believers are not to continue to voice their desire or we're to continue to voice our desire for justice for the coming of the kingdom. Not because God is hesitant to grant our request but precisely because he promises to answer our prayers. And we can still be discouraged by God's seeming silence as we wait. But even in the midst of that, we need to learn that in the silence, our loving God is answering. Whether we see his working or not, he delights to answer his children's prayers. And in that faith, in that hope, we live. Jesus says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Yes. Because we've experienced his grace, the gift of faith that he's given us, the empowerment of his Holy Spirit to live, to cry out for justice, to stay awake waiting for that day. Our king has come. He has made you his treasure to care for you and keep you. And he is coming again to set everything right, to end sin and death, to heal the nation. The king is the hope of the kingdom. So friends, believe in him. That Jesus is Savior and King. That when he claims the title of Son of Man, he has the authority to do so because that's who he is. Believe that he then lived in your place, obedient to the Father, gave up his life for you, so that now you can live in freedom from condemnation forever. Don't only believe in him, actually live in him. Be made new and then give your life away in him. Paul tells the church in Corinth, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us and we implore Implore you on half of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
This is our mission. This is what it means for us to live in Him. David Cassidy, a a pastor and mobilizer, says, The Great Commission, far from being a call to take power, is a call to renounce self-interest for the sake of others, for the stranger and alien, for the outsider, to break free from the defining boundaries of this age for the sake of the kingdom that is not of this world. The ethnos, the nations, await those who will bring them the good news of God's saving mercy given in Jesus for all people in all places in all times. Let's seek first Christ's kingdom, not ours. And remember that here we do not have a lasting city, but we seek the one that is to come. So believe in him, live in him. And then as a church, just look to him. Pray boldly and don't lose heart. Be reminded of our King in community that we might remind each other. Then keep going together and lift your eyes as you wait. Be persistent in your cries for justice. The King is the hope of the kingdom. Friends, we have a King. A very good King. Rejoice, he is coming again, and we can't imagine the splendor of his coronation. When he wipes away every tear from our eyes, and justice is fully and finally done. Take heart, he is for you. Now, live. Let's pray. Good and holy God, we thank you for. Jesus, the truth of your word that anchors us, that reminds us of the kingdom that is now come because the king has come, now dwells in us. And that with great hope, we await that day when you will return, Jesus, and set all things right. The whole world will know, see your glory and bow their knee to you. Lord, as we wait for that day, make us people that pray boldly and do not lose heart. That cry out to you for justice against our adversary. That we would see your kingdom expand in the transformation of hearts in our day. That others would join us as we anticipate your return. Celebrate your grace in all of life. In Jesus' name, amen.